Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length, the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. Prost is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about Prost, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was created by Melissa at Restorative Sexual Health. This is an online program to assist turning software into hardware without leaving your home. This program was designed for people who live in areas where access to health professionals in this area is not available, or for those who are just too busy to attend consults, or even for those who just feel more comfortable learning at home with online learning and consultations online. For more information about this program, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so Prost to you. November 11th. 11 a.m. 60 seconds kids watch on the wall in the pub in the tab in the cars we remember welcome to the penis project podcast today we're going to talk about benign prostate hyperplasia and prostate cancer and how they have different pathologies for this episode i've invited kendall gow who you've all met before if you're regular listeners Uh, she works at restorative sexual health clinic and she's going to be my co-host as she has a lot more experience than myself with urological issues So we've also got Dr. Andrew Tan, who is from Perth Urology Clinic, and he is a very experienced urologist, and he's going to explain to us the difference between BPH and prostate cancer and then a whole lot of other questions. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. So first up, how about you tell us what the difference is between the two? All right. Well, maybe we can start with BPH or benign prostate hyperplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it can get a bit technical here, but essentially BPH describes a process which is happening at the cellular level within the prostate mm-hmm. where the glands are becoming hyperplastic, which is another word for them becoming enlarged. Okay. We have more glandular material. Yeah. And this is a process which happens over a man's life, probably starting from the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally speaking, as you get older, your prostate gets bigger. But it can happen at varying rates depending on genetic factors. Mm-hmm. So you'll often find that men come in uh, with prostate problems um, and they'll say that their father had the same thing or their one of their brothers had the same issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what can happen as the glandular tissue enlarges is the prostate can get bigger. Yeah. And that can compress the urethra, which is the tube that runs through the middle of the prostate from the bladder to the outside. So that's the 
the P-tube, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and that will obviously cause uh, problems. And the, the types of problems we see fall into two categories, and they are to do with bladder storage and bladder emptying. Mm -hmm. So people might have problems with bladder storage in that they need to go to the toilet frequently because their bladder just doesn't hold as much. Mm -hmm. And the most common presentation that we see is when people get up a lot at night. Mm -hmm. So that's a term called nocturia. And that can really affect a man's quality of life because if you're not getting proper sleep, it can lead to all sorts of other issues. Mm -hmm. Like really grumpy old men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they don't need any reasons to be any grumpier. Yeah. Um, so that's the storage problems and then you have the um, bladder emptying or what we call voiding problems which is like a poor flow or difficulty getting going which is we call hesitancy um, you know the man standing there for a long time at the urinal and it's just not happening uh, a real dribbly flow and sometimes dribbling at the end mm -hmm. failing to, to the, you know completely empty out um, and that can the failure to empty out completely then leads to needing to go again frequently. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. so the two are, are intertwined. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is benign prostate hyperplasia or BPH. Mm -hmm. And now, so the symptoms you actually have symptoms when you get that, don't you? Like you'll have things you'll usually know. Yeah, look, it can cause symptoms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can have an enlarged prostate and have no symptoms. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. So we, I'm showing you a picture here of like three circles which are intersecting. Mm -hmm. And one of them is um, people who have enlarged prostates. Mm -hmm. The other one is people who have symptoms. And the other one is people who actually, the enlarged prostates are leading to obstruction of their bladder. Okay. And when those three circles intersect, so people have all three of those things, that's when we need to treat them. Okay. So they have an enlarged prostate, it's causing symptoms and it's causing obstruction of their urinary flow and leading to problems with storing urine. Okay. So, so that means that not everyone with an enlarged prostate will have symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and some people with relatively small prostates might have symptoms. So it doesn't always correlate with the size of the prostate. Okay. It's it's something that's happening in the what we call the transition zone of the prostate, which is the zone around the urethra. Yeah. So that's the bit that, that's expanding. Mm -hmm. And if that all that needs to do is just compress the urethra and then you, you can start having symptoms. Yeah. So I was saw a picture that you showed at a talk you went you gave, and the way I imagined that was that say you've got an apple, and the apple core is the inside bit, which is yep. where you get the enlargement. That would squash the urethra that runs through the middle, That's and exactly then the right. outside flesh would be the bit that we'd worry about prostate cancer in. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I mean, we can move on to talk about prostate cancer, but in any man who presents to us with. Uh, prostate enlargement causing symptoms we will assess them for prostate cancer mm -hmm. now we it's the prostate cancer generally arises from as you just mentioned the outside of the prostate mm -hmm. so it doesn't usually cause the types of symptoms that we've just described that occur with benign enlargement of the prostate mm -hmm. 
unless the prostate cancer is really advanced and it's grown and started invading deeper into the prostate. Okay. Um, now, there's a bit of a qualification here because some prostate cancers can actually arise in the middle of the prostate as well, but they're the minority. Most of them arise on the outside of the prostate. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can fit, sometimes feel them when we do a, a prostate examination or a finger up the backside examination. Okay. So um, that's why that's a useful examination to do. So the reason why we will evaluate all men presenting with uh, an enlarged prostate causing those symptoms is because if they have prostate cancer, it's going to change the treatment that we give them. So we need to know that up front. Mm -hmm. But men generally can be reassured that uh, that their first sign of prostate cancer is not generally going to be um, uh, you know, difficulty going to the toilet or frequency or urgency mm -hmm. um, unless the prostate cancer is well advanced. And these days when most GPs are checking men fairly regularly with PSA blood tests, that's going to pick it up an abnormality a long time before the prostate cancer causes symptoms. Okay. That's what we hope anyway, PSA testing. Mm -hmm. um, that bone that you can feel... Um, just above the groin is is the pubic bone, and above that is the bladder. So that's why you feel fullness when you've got a full bladder there. But right behind that is called is the prostate. So you can't actually feel it from the outside unless it's really really big. But I don't think I've really felt it on examination of an abdomen. So that's why it's uh, it's easy to feel when you do a, a rectal examination because it's um, right in front of the um, back passage. Mm -hmm. Uh, right down the middle of the, um, right down the bottom of the pelvis. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, unfortunately for men, it means that it's easy to feel on rectal examination. If it was up by the pancreas, we wouldn't be doing that examination. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> luckily for doctors, we can examine it uh, and get quite a lot of useful information. And it's also an erogenous zone, so yeah. it's not so bad that it's down there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you to talk about that. <laughs> you got another question. Good. So um, what is the actual primary function of a prostate gland if it causes so many issues? It's like an appendix. Well, yeah, it's yeah. um it's you're right. By the time it causes problems in a man's life, it's pretty much useless. So it is a reproductive organ. So prostatic secretions, including PSA, help the sperms swim. Um, so it makes for a more effective reproduction, helps the sperms get to the egg. Uh, but once a man's reproductive life is over, uh, much like the uterus, I suppose, it, it really just becomes an issue and gets in the way. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it can grow, enlarge, cause obstruction of the bladder, you can get infections, prostatitis, um, which it can be really unpleasant, and you can get prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So going back to why it would affect some men rather than others, is there any sort of, I know you touched on genetic influence, but is there any sort of lifestyle stuff that men could change? Because often you'll meet someone and they'll say, well, I'll just go on a diet, massive keto diet, and I'll try and fix it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of those dietary things are something that uh, have to be done throughout your life mm -hmm. time. So and 
you know, genetic factors probably play a bigger part. And, and also um, the most important, um, to the two most important factors are actually testosterone and time. So in men who have no testosterone, like eunuchs, they don't get enlarged prostates. Um, but men who have, um, you know, steady release of testosterone throughout their lifetime, eventually that that's a growth promoter for the prostate. Now, how much it affects the prostate is then determined by some genetic factors. And then there are some environmental factors related to diet, which um, will, you know, suppress the growth of the prostate or allow it to grow. And there was a interesting study done on Asian men who, if they have an Asian diet, which has a lot of um, soy-based um, food in it, so high estrogen, which is like yeah, has has sort of um, plant estrogens in it. Um, they tended to have a lower incidence of BPH and prostate cancer, uh, mm -hmm. but when they move to a Western society and adopt a Western diet, their incidence matches the um, incidence of um, other, um, you know, ethnicities that are consuming the same diet. So it's quite interesting that yeah. environmental factors do actually play a role. There. Yeah, that is. What about, I was looking up search terms in Google yesterday for prostates and one of the most um, like something like 30,000 people a month in America Google bananas and prostate. And I was like, that is so weird. So then I looked up bananas and prostate and there's some crazy theory that they, now I just looked it up again then, that something in the banana has, banana flower extract can be used as a therapeutic agent for BPH. Sounds absolutely like crap to me, but that must be why people keep looking it up. <laughs> Look, I think that, you know, every now and then you, you do read about things like that. But when you look at how many of that particular food that you'd have to consume at the expense of a balanced diet, mm. you're probably creating some other imbalance somewhere else. And so um, whenever patients ask me, you know, what should I eat to keep my prostate healthy? I, th I say to them, look, you really just need to have a more holistic approach to your diet and not mm. such a prostatocentric, you know, you can't really mm. eat just for one organ group. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, I think that uh, our mantra is that whatever is heart healthy, which is, a you know, a far bigger um, impact on men's health than mm. prostates, um, even though I'm not a cardiologist, I can say that, uh, whatever is heart healthy will be prostate healthy. Yeah. Um, that's been shown to be true. So, a med like a typical Mediterranean, Mediterranean yeah. diet is yeah. actually probably the best. Yeah. And in fact, there have been some studies which have shown that if you eat a huge amount of tomatoes, then your um, yeah. risk of BPH and prostate cancer goes down as well. I thought they discredited that at one point. Well, yeah, they don't, they weren't sure if that was, yeah. it's due to um, lycopenes, I think, which is the compound. Yeah, there's some tomatoes, but nobody really knows if it was the amount of tomatoes that repeat were eating or how much um, gas it was producing that was uh, causing the quite a bit. So I guess that kind of leads into more natural sort of supplements that men might 
find in a pharmacy or be encouraged to try instead of modern medicine, I guess? Yeah, look, I certainly when it comes to um, treatment of symptoms related to BPH, um, both in Australia and, and around the world, it's very popular to take um, what I would call complementary therapies. Um, and I guess the issue is that there we, we do know that there are some compounds which in some studies have shown to improve symptoms the most and the most studied one of those is um saw palmetto which is a type of flax extract i think mm. there are other ones like stinging nettle and um i can't remember them off the top of my head but um what they all seem to have in common is they have some degree of plant estrogen in them and so that's really where that it comes back to is that there's some sort of um, low dose hormonal effect that's that's occurring mm. now there was actually a large randomized study done a few years ago uh, which which showed that saw palmetto which is the main ingredient in these things like prostates and prostate relief and whatever uh, whatever you have that it wasn't actually any better than a sugar pill or placebo mm. so if people take it and think it's going to make them better, then then there's a quite a large percent of people who will be better. Yeah. Um, but it probably it's probably not um, an effective long term treatment if somebody's got a significant problem. Okay. So, um, I guess let's talk about a journey of a guy that goes to his GP and presents with um, getting up in the middle of the night to have lots of wheeze and is not sleeping properly. And yeah. So the GP does a PSA check. He might do a digital retinal exam, maybe, maybe not. What is the usual sort of um, workout for BPH before they come see you? Yeah. So let's assume that their PSA was normal um, or that they were deemed to have a low risk of prostate cancer. Um, usually a lot, it really depends on what experience the GP has in managing those symptoms. So sometimes they will start them on medication if the patient is sufficiently bothered by their symptoms. So that whole issue of bothersomeness is quite important because some people have symptoms, but they're not too bothered by them. They're prepared to put up with them or they, um, uh, they don't want to take medication for them. And generally um, the storage symptoms or what we call irritative symptoms tend to be more bothersome than the um, avoiding symptoms because they tend to creep up on people slowly over time and it's actually probably men's wives that notice that more than others because their husband's spending too long in the bathroom and they want to get in there mm. and so it's it's annoying then um or they you know they notice at night it's taking forever for the guy to go so the, the guy usually doesn't the man usually doesn't usually appreciate that so much, but it's if he's getting up a lot at night, then and it's affecting his sleep. That's the main reason why they'll go and see their GP and be bothered by their symptoms. So the GP may start them on some medication, and usually they'll start them on what's called an alpha blocker. So um, you know, examples of that are prazosin or tamsulosin. Those medications uh, work on smooth muscle around the bladder, neck, and prostate. And that there's there's been shown they've been shown to have significantly improve symptoms in in most men when uh, initially anyway. Um, 
so that's a good start, and that that may be all that they need to take. Um, if it's a particularly enlarged prostate, then there is the option of going on another medication called a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So that um, is one of the components of a common drug called duodart. So um, that will shrink the prostate as well as relax the smooth muscle within the prostate. But men have to be aware that some of the side effects of that medication is that it can um, be quite bothersome in terms of decreasing um, libido and causing erectile dysfunction. And um, so it doesn't, it may not be appropriate for men who are still quite sexually active. So that brings me to Cialis. So Cialis can work really yeah. well for BPH and also improve your erectile function. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, there have been studies which have shown that um, it's got a modest improvement in symptom, um, you know, improving symptom and decreasing bother. Um, it's probably not quite as good as an alpha blocker, but it does have the benefit that if a man is suffering from erectile dysfunction as well, that it's sort of like one medication um, will cover both bases. Yeah. And that when, when Cialis first came out and these studies were done, it was thought that, you know, this was a great drug uh, because it killed two birds with one stone. Um, but in my experience, it probably hasn't shown as much promise as it was going to. So if I, and, and the other issue is that it's expensive. Yeah. Um, so it's not subsidised, whereas some of the upper blockers and, and do it uh, are. Yeah. Um, but look, I think if, if men want to try, that's certainly a, a good option as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's working, you know, on on the um, smooth muscle of the blood vessels um, around the prostate, and there's some thought that um, improving the vascularity there might help the prostate relax and and um, you know decrease some of the congestion. What I've found, and this is purely anecdotally, is that when I've had um, seen patients that have just randomly come in in GP land with, and they're going, oh yeah, it's a bit like I've got a bit of hesitancy when I'm weighing or whatever, and you give them, so it's mild, mm. and you give them Cialis, it does seem to improve yeah. and it improves their erections. But yeah. when it's ever been a referral from someone from a urologist, for yeah. instance, it's always much more advanced and the yeah. Cialis doesn't work. Yes. So it seems it's like, does, it's yeah, milder, I mean, yeah, does that make sense? It does make sense. And, I mean, I think a lot of um, a lot of the symptoms that some men have are related to a bit of inflammation in the prostate. Um, not so, and that can be a temporary thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if Cialis is working on on that side of things, but I've certainly heard of men who have been put on anti-inflammatories for a musculoskeletal condition, and their their urinary symptoms improved. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. But I've also noticed that if you see a guy really early pre prostate cancer surgery, and you put them on a low dose Cialis. They often find voiding symptoms get better yeah. in a way too. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah okay. well. <clears throat> so um just from the usual workup from the GP, they have an ultrasound and they're showing that there is quite a lot of urine left over in the bladder. Yeah. yeah. So that prompts a referral to a urologist and you know their PSA is fine. What sort of workup do you do from there? So flexible cystoscopy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, I mean, we'll initially we'll you know take a history, examine the patient. Um, we do in the rooms a flow assessment, mm -hmm. which is quite useful. 
So um, the speed at which the urine comes out and the shape of the flow curve. So we, we get them to pass urine into a machine which measures how quickly it comes out. Yeah. And we also, as you've said, you know, we, it's great that G, a lot of GPs are arranging imaging beforehand, like an ultrasound, which will show um, if there's urine left over, um, if there's you know, thickening of the bladder wall um, to make sure and make sure that the, the kidneys are not, um, you know, backing up, the urine is not backing up to the kidneys, which is quite an advanced um, state of affairs. We will perform a cystoscopy if the patient is getting a lot of irritative symptoms um, because that can be one of the symptoms of bladder cancer as well, mm-hmm. or if they've got blood in the urine. Um, or if uh, we suspect that um, you know they may have a have scar tissue in the urethra, or that if they've had any type of previous um, prostate or you know urethral surgery, or mm-hmm. if we if we're concerned that there might be a urethral stricture, then we will do a cystoscopy. Or if we've given them treatment which hasn't really worked, and we're we're not sure if it's the prostate's the problem or it might be something else, then we'll do a cystoscopy as well. And just for the people listening, if you're wondering what a cystoscopy is, it's a little camera put up the eye of your penis and then it looks inside your bladder and all the way up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. <laughs> a great thing to look at. <laughs> um, okay, so you decide that obviously not prostate cancer related again. They've got a really big prostate. We can um, try and sort it out. So they've tried the mild sort of try the tablet, see yeah. how you go. Is there any sort of treatment when you got, go to the moderate and then the severe side of BPH? Yeah, so I think if they've tried medication and uh, it hasn't worked or if, if it worked for a period of time and then their symptoms got worse again, that's when we think about doing a procedure or an operation to actually relieve the obstruction. Now, um, did you want me to talk about that yeah just tell us the briefly what the options are briefly um it kind of depends on how severe the symptoms are and the size of the prostate there are um and a lot of patients come to us asking about these uh what so-called minimally invasive surgical options Mm -hmm. um which the two most commonly uh, used ones are the urolift and resume Mm -hmm. so urolift uses um, some metallic tabs at, attached to a, a suture which pries the your prostate prostate lobes apart. So it's like physically mm. pushing the, the lobes to the side to create a better channel through there. And resume is a procedure which uses steam to um, cause the, the prostate tissue to undergo a process called apoptosis that's a bit technical but it it basically means that the cells are going to die and be reabsorbed by the body okay so that that sounds very good in theory um in practice it's probably best for men who have quite mild symptoms but for some reason they didn't want to take medication because it was causing side effects or but they still didn't want to have a more serious operation, which we'll talk about later, or a more complete operation, mainly because, well, one of the main reasons is that um, those operations will, like a TURP or a laser prostatectomy, might cause retrograde ejaculation, 
whereas these other minimally invasive procedures are thought to have a higher chance of preserving ejaculation um, in an anti-grade fashion. So by anti-grade, we mean the ejaculation shoots forward, which is what it's supposed to do, rather than retrograde where it goes back into the bladder. Um, so, so that's something I get asked a lot. When people do have retrograde ejaculation, which for anyone listening is just it doesn't come out, it goes in, as Andrew just said, that's not at all harmful, is it? But people worry that there's something wrong that yeah. is harmful. Yeah, it's not mm. going to harm them. Mm. Um, it's just that if you, and if you give people an alpha blocker or 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 dutasteride or duodart, it will happen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really just because the the muscle at the bladder neck um, is relaxing, or you've removed the tissue there by surgery, and the path of least resistance is for the seminal fluid to go back into the bladder yeah and it's not dangerous it's not harmful um it bothers some men um so they just have to be aware that it may occur if they go down a particular treatment path is it reversible once you stop the medication so if a man finds that this is weird can they go that in most cases with tamsulosin it is but i have had patients who have been on duodart where it's it's hasn't come back um and some of the sexual uh, side effects of duodart can take a long time to reverse as well. Yeah. Um, so, look, I think if you've got significant prostate obstruction, which is not suitable to be treated by those normally invasive methods, then you actually have to go in there and remove the obstructing tissue. And that's where the next sort of level of surgery is, which is either using a laser to cut out the tissue or a or a hot loop, um, electrocautery loop to cut out the tissue, or you can use a, a laser to vaporize the tissue and you're, you're trying to create a cavity within the prostate so that the urine can pass through there easier. And in most of those cases, you will get retrograde ejaculation. But the um, relief from symptoms will be more durable as well whereas with those minimally invasive procedures they tend to um, be less effective as time goes on they're a bit of a um, buying time type of thing with those kind of surgeries does it affect their erectile function which ones you do the minimally invasive Mm. ones no it doesn't tend to so much no but even with the more um, you know the ones we're removing more tissue uh, they don't tend to affect erectile function um, any more than any type of other procedure down in, in that part of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, the overall rate of erectile dysfunction actually after any, um, well, uh, a man of a certain age, like over 65, um, in any type of pelvic procedure or abdominal procedure is actually quite high. It's about 10%. Mm. So even after an appendectomy yeah. um, or bowel surgery, you know, yeah. it can be quite high. Um, so that's the, the rate actually after a, a transurethral resection of the prostate or a laser prostatectomy. And it probably is due to um, uh, people who have, you know, pre-existing or pre-emergent erectile dysfunction anyway. and through um, perhaps interfering with the blood supply in the pelvis or uh, the anesthetic or, you know, some sort of this some sort of medical insult you've sort of tipped them over the edge to where they develop erectile dysfunction mm. but in terms of from a physical point of view do you go 
close to the erectile nerves with any of these procedures? No. Mm. Um, other than with the Eurolift, you know, there might be a risk of some of those tabs getting close to the nerves, but it's usually deployed in a manner where it's not um, mm. close to those nerves. Because that's something I feel like I see a lot of is guys saying they had some sort of surgery for a large prostate mm. and or for BPH, and then they'll say, oh, and then six months later I developed erectile dysfunction and I wasn't told that might be a case. And I'll often say to them, you're kind of at the age that you would probably develop erectile dysfunction anyway, yeah. and it's important not to muddy the waters because yes. how do you know whether it's the mm. treatment or if it was going to happen anyway? You yeah. would never know, and I think yeah. we all like to think we're infallible and nothing's going to go wrong on its own, and yeah. then when it does, we want to blame something. Yeah, that's right. So, and, I mean, I think if it, it kind of depends on how, you know, what group of patients you're looking at. If you look at the ones who had really severe uh, bladder outlet obstruction, um and then you fix their bladder outlet obstruction um their uh erectile function actually improves because they are not having sex when they've got a, a catheter in or, or when they're getting up you know many times to go to the toilet um or when they're tired the whole time um and they don't have any libido yeah, from that course. either so yeah. yeah um if you fix that usually you know they return back to normal yeah yeah good Ooh. So, um, you know, going back into hospital, they've had, say, a green light laser or something um, major done to their prostate to open that outlet up. Is there any sort of post-surgery care that could go wrong or is it mostly just pretty successful? What's the journey? For yeah, you? look, uh, by and large, if you choose the right patients, it's um, there's a very high success rate. Um, now... You mentioned green light laser. That's one type of laser treatment. The other one is, is holmium laser. So green light vaporizes the tissue and holmium um, laser nucleation of the prostate cuts the tissue out. So they're slightly different um, and have, have pluses and minuses. Um, the main benefit of green light is it's, it's very good at um, uh, being uh, causing no bleeding. So some we have more and more patients who have you know, on blood thinning medications. Mm. So the the prostate's a very vascular organ. So there will be some degree of reddish colored urine or pinkish urine afterwards. But in some cases, you can get quite significant bleeding. Um, and that used to certainly be the case with uh, the older methods of doing um, the surgery, like the old TERPs. But these days, um, you know, all the technology is getting better and our ability to deal with even the prostates that bleed a lot is a lot better as well. Um, the other thing that used to occur with the TERPs is that if they absorbed a lot of the fluid that you use to irrigate the channel, um, patients could become quite unwell because you had to use um, a, a fluid which would dilute the blood and there are sort of um, consequences of that uh, which can cause disturbances I won't go into it because it's quite technical mm -hmm. but these days um, most of these procedures can be done with um, saline which is the same concentration as the body fluids so it's what we call isotonic uh, so even if it is absorbed it won't cause those problems um, any type of operation where you're operating on the prostate uh, the most Probably the most worrisome complication is you might cause incontinence. 
Um, now, thankfully, the risk of that is pretty low across the board. But generally speaking, the larger the prostate that you're operating on, the higher the risk. Um, and in some patients, well, in most patients, it's, it's if they do develop incontinence, it's just temporary and will improve with time. But a lot of these patients with the very large prostates, they have not had to use their pelvic floor muscles um, for quite a long time. So they have to relearn to re-engage their pelvic floor uh, because that is the only thing that's really going to keep them continent is, is the sphincter, which is below the prostate um, and the pelvic floor there. So would you say, you know, like when a man's doing pre-surgery workup and they'll see a pelvic floor physio? prostate cancer would you recommend the same i do a, prostate i do a lot of um holmium whole lips on a of the prostate known as whole lips on large prostate so it's, it's particularly good for large prostates and all my patients will see a pelvic floor physiotherapist uh beforehand and learn the same exercises that uh patients learn before a radical prostatectomy mm -hmm. and do any of these surgeries need to be done again well, some of the ones that are treated with the minimally invasive treatment will because they don't really remove tissue and so the prostate will continue to, continue to grow. Um, the cavitating procedures where you're actually removing tissue, if it's done properly, then the, the risk of recurrence is, is low. And the, the procedure that removes the most amount of tissue is the whole lip procedure and that's been one of the most studied procedures in urology and the recurrence rate of that is you know the lowest of, of all of them so it's the most durable and with LUTs or the symptoms of the voiding and storage just explain what LUTs is for the listeners so, uh, LUTs is lower urinary tract symptoms so like Andrew was talking about that storage or that voiding problem can it coexist with prostate cancer or can it be suggestive of prostate cancer well, not most of the time. Most of the time, it's the BPH is coexisting with the prostate cancer, but the prostate cancer is not actually causing any symptoms. As we sort of alluded to earlier, for the prostate cancer to cause the types of symptoms that BPH causes, it has to be pretty advanced. Um, so uh, it's not going back to men who have uh prostate cancer picked up at a very early stage by PSA screening a lot of them will say but I had no symptoms mm. so an absence of symptoms is not really um a reassuring sign that you don't have prostate cancer the best way to find out um is to have a PSA test yeah I always think about this like breast cancer with women mm. you know if someone comes in and you they say they've got a lump and it's painful it's very often not breast cancer it's usually dense breasts yeah. or a cyst or something like that and if they've got a lump that's not painful that's yeah. when you get worried and yeah. I think it's similar isn't it with prostate cancer if yeah. you've got no symptoms that's really when you need to go looking for that yeah. rather than um, when you've got symptoms you can usually go well it's probably just an enlarged prostate yeah. and we'll check it out for yeah. prostate cancer but don't stress about it yeah I mean, unfortunately, we do see from time to time patients with very advanced prostate cancer who mm. slip through the net and they are having, you know, voiding symptoms. Is that less now, like now that there's yeah, more yeah. screening? Yeah, yeah, it certainly is, yeah. 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 
Mm. You still hear the odd one that mm. presented to their GP and it just, yeah, wasn't yeah. followed through. Or, Those were the guys that never went to their GP. Yeah. <laughs> what about, do you notice, because I know you do country clinics, do you find that you're more likely to see advanced prostate cancer in country areas? Look, unfortunately that has been shown to be the case. Mm. Um, there's data to show that regional um, patients are present later and at a more advanced stage. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't have any more questions. Do you have anything else? No. Do you have anything else that we haven't asked that you think we should have? I think you've interrogated me pretty well. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's all it's all um, uh, part and parcel of um, getting your prostate checked out, and you know, making sure that um, if you if you have these symptoms, you, you go and see your GP and um, you know get help because you there are a lot of men out there that suffer in silence i mean the only thing we didn't cover i suppose is the absolute indications for surgery where we'd go and do surgery straight away yeah um and that's obviously the man who's gone into retention and had to have a catheter inserted yeah and is not able to pass urine uh without when the catheter is taken out um patients who's um and this is how bad prostate obstruction can get if it backs up to your kidneys and starts causing kidney damage mm -hmm. then we have to go in and, and fix that so yeah. there's uh, a plumbing problem and um but but usually it, it will get better once we've fixed it so that's good if they're getting recurrent urinary tract infections because the urine's just not draining properly so it's like a bit like a toilet that doesn't flush properly mm -hmm. so it's just never getting rid of all of the urine and and that you know residual urine is a a focus for infection yeah or if they have um, bladder stones so bladder stones mm -hmm. are different to kidney stones bladder stones occur because the urine's just been sitting around and, and the um, more the heavier constituents of the urine sink to the bottom of the bladder and clump together create crystals mm -hmm. and we're, i've seen some pretty impressive yeah. bladder stones really yeah. um you know it's the size of a ostrich egg really wow. <laughs> yeah and so does that then cross, like, do they, like, get over the urethra and stop it from, the weed from coming out? Uh, it's a bit like a, a, a ball that floats around a sink. So every now and then it'll just hit the sinkhole and their urine will just bang, stop straight away. And it will, you know, it, it can cause trauma to the lining of the bladder and cause bleeding, pain, infection. So, yeah, um, if somebody has a bladder stone, then, yeah, we remove the bladder stone and we do the... Uh, prostate at the same time do you do the same as a kidney stone you go in and blast it in the bladder yeah so the benefit of a laser is you can use a high-powered laser to um, fragment the stone um in the old days you used to have to um cut, it cut people open which had a very high complication rate especially you know they used to do it without anesthesia in the middle ages um, so these problems these, these men's problems have been going on for centuries so if you blast it and break it up into little bits, though, do you still have to pee it out? Uh, we usually flush it out at the time of the operation. God, because you can you imagine that? All these sharp bits of stone. Usually once they uh, are, you know, small enough to um, come through the bladder neck, they'll, they'll pass through the urethra pretty well. Okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And thanks, Kendall. And, um, yeah. We'll put this one in prostate cancer or prostate awareness month. Thanks very much. Bye.
gonna tell you about a boy who lives inside me. It's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback. And Melissa and I are absolutely thrilled about this. What we'd really love you to do, though, is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases, and this helps our podcast to get more people. And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Women, just a mystery to me. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man.